no, no, no. Oh. Oh yes, for the true at heart, for the beautiful of soul, for those who truly believe that there is a greater tomorrow just over the horizon, for those who are the sensitive people, those who are pursued by the hounds of hell of an uncomfortable and an uncomprehending and a generally nasty society, you'll come to the right place. I'm here, so big daddy here. Bring things around. Bring it up there, Robert, please. Control tower to pilot. Pilot to control tower. Over. Control tower to pilot. How do you want your eggs? Over. Pilot to control tower. I want my eggs over. 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 Control tower to pilot. Roger. No, my name's Marvin. Over. Well, I'm sorry then. Can't have the eggs. They're for a guy named Roger. Over. Roger. No, my name's Eugene. Over. Okay. Eugene. Over. And out. And now, friends, it's all set. It's March time. That's right, it's time. It's time to pick them up and lay them down once again. It's time to march around the Samuel Park tonight. Tonight again. It's time to pick them up and lay them down. All together. Oh, look at those flags flapping in the wind. Look at that blue sky arching overhead. Yes, you can, friends. You can if you keep your knees going high. If you keep your gut flat. If you keep your eyes on that golden horizon. You can with yourself a better, a greater, a more fantastic, an unbelievably beautiful tomorrow. Bring it up. How's that for an opening tonight? I think that was a March of Time opening that'll hold them for a while there. Well, they're making a movie, the Kama Sutra. In color. They are. Jack Lemmon is playing this Hindu medicine man. Great idea. I, I, I'm looking forward to that. They, they, they're getting around to the adult movies. Long last. Uh, let's see what else we've got here. Oh, yeah, a man remained behind the steering wheel of his car smoking a cigarette until he and the vehicle sank in 12 feet of water in the Swan River in Perth, Australia. Today, 
the driver who went into the river after a wild 50-mile-an-hour drive to the city in which he hit two other cars offered cigarettes to would-be rescuers who swam out to the car. He turned up his window, ignoring all pleas to get out, smoked a cigar, and disappeared from sight, wearing a straw hat. <laughs> oh, life is a rich, raw mulligatawny stew, and uh, it's getting richer and raw, and the mulligatawny stew is getting deeper and stronger. Did I ever tell you about the time that I drove the car in the water? You know, I hear about that. I, I won't tell you about that, no. We'll save that. Uh, well, take. I didn't actually mean to drive the car in the water, <laughs> to be honest with you. I remember one time a sailor got so mad. There was a car that was produced in America at one point, friends, so so bad and was so maddeningly bad. It was the kind of car that made you mad to look at it. It was just a bad car, and not only was it bad, it was aggressively bad. You've seen that kind, Walt. An aggressively bad, angry little car. And this car was a kind of like a sardine can with square wheels, a very small angry little rotten car, and when it went, when it had that kind of a motor, you know, I never heard one of these cars when it ran, you know, like a car. And uh, I remember one day in Cincinnati, there was a sailor, and he had one of these cars parked in a parking lot down on the river. And uh, one thing about Cincinnati, boy, that's a handy river down there. And uh, he came back to this place where the car was parked, and he got so bugged, it wouldn't go, you know. Well, it did go, and it would go. And then he would try to start it. And he finally got so mad, he got out of the car, and he had his chick with him. He got out of the car, he walked around the back of the car and kicked it. And the car rolled right down the embankment and into the river and into 27 feet of water. And he says, good enough. He says, anyone who fishes that thing out uh, can have it. And they, they busted the guy 10 minutes later for illegal parking. They really did on the bottom of the river and cluttering up the bottom of the river with junk. <laughs> and he had to pay to have them haul it out. Which, uh, <laughs> what car? I'll, I'll ask you. I'll, uh, I'll give you the Brass Big Leggy with Bronze Oak Creek Palm if you can tell me the name of that car that was produced here in America for a while. Mangry car. And it even looked, you know, it was, it was the kind of car that was, uh, it was provocative. Uh, certain cars, you know, just klutz cars, you know, they just sit there, they're fat, and they got big bumpers and big fat fenders, they look like cantaloupes, you know, you can't really get mad at a cantaloupe. But uh, this was the kind of a car that you just look at it, and something, your hackles would rise. And guys bought this car who had normally risen hackles. Uh, every guy I ever knew, I had one engineer who was so mad, that engineer, Walt, used to sit at his control desk there, while I'm doing my show, they had all these shows coming on there, and he's working all day long, working. He's writing frantically. And one time I went and I said, Johnny, what do you do? Just tell me, what is it you're working on? It's not the log, because they're always sending memos down, you don't keep the log up. What is it you're doing? And he says, none of your damn business. And he writes, and I says, well, come on, I'm your old friend. I've been working with you. And I looked over his shoulder, and the letter started out, dear editor, I... This guy was a compulsive letters to the editor writer. He was bugged by it all. He sat there and wrote letters at night and day, and he owned one of these cars. And I began to put together the fact that since he was bugged with the world, he bought a car. He was a born masochist. And the, the, worst, the worst thing that happened to him was the time they did clean up the mess in the city hall. And that really bugged him more than anything. He says, that was phony. He says, they're, they're only doing it to get him mad. He says, they're, they're just doing this. It's a sop to the voters. I said, but Johnny, you wanted them to clean up the mess in the city hall. Now they did. They ran the rascals out. They chased them all down the river. They were leaving like rats leaving a ship. He says, I know. The bums. And I said, well, Johnny, what do you mean, the bums? He said, I know what they're doing. It's just to, get, it's just to, just to make me feel good. That's all. That's not real. That's phony. 
and he sat down and wrote a letter. Dear phonies, you think you chased the rascals out, and uh, no matter what happened, he was bugged. And when he wasn't bugged, he went out and sat in his car, and that did it. Because his car didn't start for over 18 months, uh, this automobile of his. Uh, it didn't start normally. He had to push it down a long hill. He lived two and a half miles from the station, and it was a long, gradual hill. You know, Cincinnati's built on seven hills, and he lived on the top of one of them, believe, and uh, ironically enough, called Mount Healthy. He lived on the top of Mount Healthy there, and he was the angriest, sickest guy I've ever known. And uh, he always wore his earphones, by the way, even when he was off work around his neck. He said it was his badge of office. Says he took the vows when he came in the radio, and he's not going to give them up. And uh, <laughs> Johnny used to get out in the morning with his car. He came to work at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. He was on the night shift. And he would start about 8, 9 o'clock in the morning because of this car he had. And he would get out in the morning and push his car for about a block and a half, and his wife would push him. And uh, the three of them, he had an angry little wife. You know, I think guys always seek their own level, really. You know how many guys feel that they, they were destroyed because of the wife they married? You ever take a look at them? And, uh, you know, you see, you see that nobody, nobody gets any more nor less than he deserves in this world. And Johnny and his wife were two twin spark plugs, little fire plugs, you know, little tiny people with feet, little feet sticking out there, little things in the ears. And, and Johnny and his wife were two twin fire plugs of totally distilled anger. And they married each other to fill in the gaps between crises and the government and the chicaneries down at the Baptist Church or wherever it is that they were always mad at and what was going on in the city hall. And when that would clear up, Johnny would start on his wife, and then his wife would start on Johnny. And about every 15 minutes, the phone would ring in my studio, and it would just ring in there, you know, and I didn't get calls. Red phone, you know, emergency calls, and I'd pick up, Johnny, I'm talking Johnny! I'd say, oh, there she is, Aggie. Johnny, Aggie! And he would just turn green, and he'd write even harder, dear editor, that rotten... And uh, so he bought this car. You know, what happened was that they were getting older, the two of them. And their anger was, you know, because anger is a form of love. You know this, Walt, from reading Durrell and all these other important people. You wouldn't believe it if I told you, but if Durrell tells you, it's okay. Now, anger is a form of love. And fighting is a form of love. Very few people realize that. I don't think, I don't think Ed, uh, Edward Albee understands this, that the people who really make the scene fight like nuts 24 hours a day. It's a form of lovemaking. Nobody's going to fight anybody he doesn't think is important. So Johnny and his wife were getting a little older, you know, and that flame of the true vitriol, of the true anger, had begun to simmer down, you know, like true love always does. They were getting a little bit older. And they bought this car. Uh, this car provided uh, a, a surrogate. It was a kind of a placebic anger. And uh, so when Johnny was not, he couldn't get up the old anger. He used to get up against Aggie, and she couldn't get it up against him. And so they would both look out at the car. And would build up. And John would go out about 8, 9 o'clock in the morning to get in his car to come to work by 4. He lived on a long downhill grade. And uh, at, at uh, 4, 5, 6 o'clock in the afternoon, you could hear Johnny coming. He pushed his car all the way to work. Uh, he would, uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not kidding you, this is the truth. Everyone thinks I'm making it up. But John was like Sisyphus. Uh, and and uh, I know that Camus never knew of this kind of car, but if he had known of this kind of car, he would have understood the rock that Sisyphus was trying to push. Maybe this was the rock. In fact, this car bore a great resemblance to many rocks I've known. And John used to push it and jump in and ride. He'd ride about a half a block, and because it had very bad bearings, it wouldn't even coast downhill good. And it would squeak, uh, and, it, and he'd, throw it into, he'd throw it into gear. 
And then I'd hear a muffled cursing of Johnny and his wife pushing. And he would open the window and holler, Wait till I get it in seconds, will ya? And she'd say, Stupid! And they start pushing. Well, she would push him about a mile and a half, and then he would hit the big grade at Vine Street, and he could coast all the way down to work, providing he got enough of the lights. Well, it was more exciting, though, when he had to go home from work. This was an exciting... <laughs> would you please give me the rich fullness of life, uh, will you, that music, please, will you, Walter? Please. Yes. Once again... WOI, in cooperation with its vast public service department, brings you one of those rarities in the American radio scene, a true public service salute. And tonight, we salute the richness of life. We salute all the many faceted uh, little items that go to make up this vast mosaic of existence in our hurly-burly workaday world we have a tendency to forget these wonderful little things that make the candy fudge of time the rich full fruit of the creation itself the thing worth all of it i guess yes tonight woi salutes the richness the fullness of life and says, and promises, and pledges, and gets down on his knees and says, if we get more sponsors, we'll bring more of it to you. Ask yourself this question, friends. Am I worthy? Am I worthy? Or am I one of those selfish beings who go through life complaining bitterly about the evil that others do unto me? Ask yourself that. And then ask yourself, what evil do I do it oh, unto others? And then shrug, put on your shades, and go off to Sardis. It ain't easy, friends, we know. And the good, well-turned evil deed here and there throughout the simple workaday week of a man keeps the eyes sparkling and bright keeps the stomach flat and keeps the purse full. So who to put down evil in all its manifold forms? And here at WOR, we recognize the existence of evil as a real living force in every man's workaday world. And we salute that force tonight. Yes. There are many biased people who will tell you evil things about evil. There are many people who are selfish. There are those who are untalented and not equipped to deal and work in this art form. Do not listen to them. Especially if you have a little chutzpah yourself. And so tonight, WOR once again salutes in all of its many forms, chicanery. That's very good. Will you please log that as a public service, Walt? And uh, that reminds me, speaking of chicanery, this is WOR AM and uh, FM, New York. <laughs> Just a gigolo everywhere I go. Now keep that up there, Walt. Don't take it away. We're going to need the richness and the fullness of light music for later on. You know, speaking of the richness and the fullness... And from time to time, we are bringing you little notes about the great role reversal that's occurring in our world today. 
That's uh, in capital letters, the GRR, break or reversal, which is getting to be pretty much of a dynamic thing. And the guy wrote me a letter from London, one of the listeners. He says, Shepard, believe me, he says, in London, Walter, it's gone far away and above and beyond anything we have even started. He sends me an ad from the, uh, the Sunday London Times. It's in full color. And <laughs> just this tall, thin, young lad. And he's wearing a fuzzy cashmere sweater and he's wasp-waisted. And he's carrying what looks very much like a... Well, I'll read the copy to you. It says, Do you care to bet that the fashion for men bags won't catch on? Designer Georgie Malliard, who sells gear hats to pop singers, thinks, in fact, he says he knows they will. They're all the rage on the continent, he says. No smart man can afford to be without his handbag these days. They're less bulky than a briefcase, and their wrist strap makes them easier to manage, and... They're oh so smart. These bags are designed to take all the little bits and pieces a man stuffs in his pocket, little makeup things and cosmetic items which tend to ruin the lining of his suits. Our biggest problem was to find a name for them. Men violently react against the word handbag, so <laughs> we're going to sell them to them as, please bring me the richness of fullness of life music, Walter, we're going to sell them to them as hand wallets. So once again, we salute the new brave rich life which is opening up for all of us men. It's just over the horizon. And he writes and says, It is not uncommon today to see many men on the streets of Great Britain wearing eyeliner and eye shade. Yes, wearing uh, clever little things with their hair and little clips behind the ear. He said, things are moving. He said, of course, the girls are going precisely the opposite. The new hip young girl of Britain wears no makeup at all. Her hair is shorn, short and cut. In fact, the crew cut is becoming all the rage in Brighton Beach and other centers of great European flowering culture. And so, once again, we salute the rich new world, which is just over the horizon. Oh, gang. This is brought to you Fire Island Protective Association as a public service. Oh, life. Life is so sweet. But one sometimes is driven to distraction to attempt to distill the essence of all that is. Oh, isn't that true, gang? The great newsreel of life unfolding, bringing to you new riches, new lovelinesses, new excitements, almost on the hour, every hour, 24 hours a day, with breaks for news and time and weather. It unrolls, unreels in vast 8-millimeter technicolor, night after night, in full, rich, blown stereophonic sound. Transistorized in eight decorator shades and all guaranteed to be color fast. I'm with you. You're a money back, if not delighted. Get up there, Walter. Surround them with the music of the good life. The life that is lived by we who have tasted the Elysium fruits of paradise itself. Corvettes on the banks of Babylon. Oh, that was very good, Walt. That's excellent. Martha Dean revisited That's that album. Leonard Bernstein. Very good. Uh, by the way, on the subject of that, uh, 
You ever been to Hong Kong? A friend of mine made a fantastic line about Hong Kong the other day. He called it, he called it the Chinese Corvettes. <laughs> Have you ever been there? <laughs> I'll tell you, <laughs> it's depressing to go to the Orient and find they've got rotten Chinese food. <laughs> Just like the time that, that you know, that, that reminds me, I'll have to, uh, that, that reminds me of a, of a very depressing story. Uh, I arrived one night in Naples with three or four other guys, and we arrived about 10 o'clock in a plane, a Navy plane, that landed in the airport outside of Naples, which, by the way, is a hair-raising experience of unparalleled excitement. I'll tell you, uh, you have never seen anything like an Italian uh, control tower going full blast, talking to a Navy plane that has just lost one motor on its port wing. It was exciting. And we came down into the darkness, and the instant we landed, you know you know you're in Italy. There's a certain softness, a certain kind of uh, acrid, great, wonderful, spicy smell in there. You've never really traveled, have you, Walt? Well, I'm going to have to send you around a bit before, you know? we got to see a little of this. And the, we came winding down. We landed in the mountains outside of, of Naples. And you know, you come down. We came down on this Navy open. It was a jeep, actually, a, a troop carrier. And we came, we came down through the mountains. And you could see all of Napoli laid out there below us. And that fantastic bay. And you could see outlined against the moon off to our left, Vesuvius itself. And just the slight, just the slight kind of a garland, silverish, misty quality with a, with a, where the moon was just laying along the shore as the mountain climbed up. And you could see the small towns strung out along the Bay of Napolino. Well, <laughs> we're, we're whistling down through the darkness. You could smell the mimosa, and you could smell the ancient gnarled olive trees. And, you know, it was all there. You could smell the ancient gnarled open sewer system. And it was, it was fantastic. Oh, yeah, it's all mingled. And in, in, in a situation like that, it's all very exciting. You know, we're coming down through the mountains getting down closer and closer to, to Napoli. And, of course, uh, there is some truth in that uh, when they say, see Naples and die. Many people have, uh, in one way or another. But uh, literally, though, it is a magnificent city to see from a certain angle when you come down and you see that bay down there in the ancient fort hanging out and right in the middle of it, La Galerie, all lit up. And I don't know, it's there. It's hard to put it into words, except that it's, it's an entity. It's sort of just like how can you really put New York into words, you know? Uh, New York is New York. And just like you can't ever really put another person in words. They're so completely themselves. They're so, com so completely an entity and so logical. Have you ever had that? Am I the only one that walks down the street and looks at people he's never seen before and somehow feels that there had to be a person like that? They're completely lo no, completely logical. That is a person you knew had to exist. All right, okay, I'm the only one, but I've had that feeling. It's a terrible thing to have to say, but it is true. Uh, and have you ever had that feeling when you're sitting in a bus and you see these people around? Here's a little short, fat lady. You can hear her girdle squeaking, you know, and she's got this this obscene flowered print dress on, and she's got her knit shopping bag, you know, her little pot hat on the on the head there, and she's angrily yelling at the guy up in the front, you know, that's operating the bus. And, she comes back down, her hackles up, and boy, she's bugged. She sits down on the seat. Have you ever had that feeling, and you say to yourself, I am looking at somebody's Aunt Emily. Now, I don't know this lady, but there are a lot of people who would be interested to see her. Uh, her cousins, her nephews, 
her grandchildren, her daughter, all of these people would love to see Aunt Emily. Somehow, seeing Aunt Emily is a great moment for them. And here I am seeing Aunt Emily. I want, you know, have you ever had that feeling? I don't know. That's another nuttiness. But that's the way Naples is. Uh, when you see Naples, it is totally logical. Now, why this is so, I cannot explain it. Uh, Naples is, and you have a feeling that you've seen it before, which you haven't, and you don't get it from Sophia Loren movies, I can tell you that. Uh, you also have a feeling that it's a kind of an amalgam in certain parts of Naples, of all the, the operas you've ever seen. Uh, there, was a, there was a street, uh, have you ever seen much opera? The real Verdi, the, the Rossini, the genuine... This kind of opera, you know, where the peasants dance in the square for the Duke's wedding, you know, that kind of scene, and the sneaky baron is planning to murder him at midnight, and he's going to elope with Candelarisano, you know, this whole bit. And the manservant overhears them, and they've got the vial of poison, and they sing the, the famous poison duella. Well, this is this is the essence of, <laughs> in a nutty way, of certain parts of Naples. And I I'm walking down this street, back of back out, out in the in the real in the real boondocks of Naples, and it's about a foot and a half wide. And the laundry and the wash is all hanging down there, and the fat ladies are hanging out of the window, and they have it lit. You know, it's lit like an opera set. You know, that kind of cheesy, funny, yellow, golden, ridiculous, phony-looking light. And there were at least 45 Carmens walking up and down wearing red dresses, winking. And so I am with this guy, <laughs> I'm with this guy you know, and we're walking along. We're in the middle of this rotten opera. We're looking for the Duke. I'm looking for the Baron, you know, and I'm waiting for the natives to start coming out for the beginning of the second act, you know, when they do their famous thing that has to do with the fiesta of the Duke's wedding and all that stuff. Well, this is a logical city. It fits all the cliches that you've seen and read and felt about it. Now, where, where we, get, we, get into the, we get into our hotel room, you know, and I, you know, I take off my coat, and I'm, boy, I'm sweaty and rotten. I got this khaki shirt on. And uh, outside is, for the first time in my life, is Napolino, you know, Napoli, 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 no. So I look out of the window, and there they are down there, and you can see the crowds running up down the little Fiat. You have never heard a Fiat. Well, you own a Fiat. Well, you have never heard a Fiat in Naples. In the mating season, uh, you see, in Naples they don't build Fiat, you know, they breed, and uh, it's a funny thing. I got there right in the heart of the mating season. It was just awful, you know. They get in heat, and it's a terrible thing. And and uh, you, we'd be up in the hotel room. You'd hear them going, wow, 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 wow. You never believe that a little six hundred, a little six hundred Fiat could be as angry as that little Fiat sounded all over. You can hear them. And once in a while, you'd hear the drone. You'd hear the drone of a hunting Alfa Romeo uh, coming down. A, a two-liter Alfa Romeo would be coming down from the hills, and there would be an Italian actress sitting in there. You see her hair flying back, you know, seven-foot long hair flying back over the trunk. And uh, she'd come down, and you'd hear the scream of those overhead valves. She's shifting down. She sees a little cubby of mating Fiat's down there in the corner. They have special horns. Each car is given a special horn in Italy. 
and you know the rank of the car by the kind of horn that it's got. A Maserati has one kind of horn. This is a boss horn. It's like the cry of a bull moose on the rampage in the Maine woods. Now, that doesn't mean it's loud. It just goes, Every Fiat in the crowd, every Fiat for miles around hides under the mushrooms when a big Maserati comes down the hills. And then once in a while, a Ferrari Berlinetti. Uh, this is the this this is it. Uh, a Ferrari Berlinetti, 12 cylinder, 4.1 literino comes with Gran Turismo comes sailing through the crowd with the Torasoli at the wheel, and he has attached to the front of his car the big peasant sickle they use. It's a, it's a it's an added uh, you can get this as added, added equipment in Italy. I guess they don't put it on over here. It's a you have to import duties and all that you know. But it's a sickle for cutting down peasants in front when they're in front of you. It cuts them off at the knees very quick. And that when this uh, Ferrari Berlinetti comes down, it's got a horn that goes, oh, 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 oh. Oh, wow. If you've, ever, you've never heard a sound like a Ferrari out stalking at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, this is the true predatory creature of the automobile world. And once in a while, you'll hear a Ferrari snag a small Fiat, a Topolino. It'll get a Topolino uh, along the Appia Grinasserino, and you'll hear, oh, oh, oh. And away he goes. And uh, it's just awful. They, you know, <laughs> so the, here we are. We're sitting up in our hotel room, and I'm all excited. I'm going out to Naples, you know, I'm going out tonight. So uh, Louie and I rush down, down the stairway, and we go to the desk clerk. And here is this suave Italian desk clerk. And uh, he speaks impeccable English. And uh, so uh, Louis says, uh, where's, where's, uh, we, want, we want some real spaghetti, some real Italian spaghetti. We would like some Italian uh, spaghetti. And he looks at it and says, asso, 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 spaghetti, no, ah, yes, serino. Uh, go to Luigi, knows down the street, terissimo. Uh, Luigi, no, is an excellent spaghetti, no, spaghetti with marinara sauce and a mushroomino. And Louis says, ah, you mean spaghetti marinara? He says, ah, yeah, si, 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 senor. On the street we go, and here is this dimly lit place, a genuine Italian in the middle of Naples. Now, where, where could you get more Italian than in Naples? This is real, this is the real thing, and you could smell the cheese, the mozzarella. You could smell the tomato pastorino. Uh, you could smell the pasta itself, a boiling and a cooking in the patorinos. And, uh, you know, it was a kind of an excitement. Oh, boy, because there is nothing that a true New Yorker likes than an Italian restaurant, you know. <laughs> I can, I can right now, if you're interested, I could peel off the names of nine fantastic Italian restaurants within, uh, say, a half mile radius from where I'm speaking now. Hardly anybody in New York ever eats in an American restaurant. One night it's Italian, the next night it's a wee Francaise, you know, and the night after that it's, uh, it's a Louis German restaurant, and the night after that it's the Magyars, and after that it's the Filipino restaurant. Hardly anybody goes to an American restaurant. You know, Howard Johnson, uh, <laughs> which is pure Americano. So we're in front of a genuine Italian restaurant. This is the real thing. No one can say, you know, this is where the Italians eat. They were coming in and out, you know. And so in we go. Louis and myself go in, and immediately up comes this waiter with a black suit, and he's got the white shirt, you know. And he's got spots. He's a genuine. He's, I'll tell you what he's like. He's like an overseas Ratner's uh, waiter. You, you ever been to Ratner's? 
Oh, I'll take you down there, Walt. You have never been around anywhere. What are you doing reading Durrell? I've got to take you down to Ratner's on 2nd Avenue. So he comes up and he says, Ah, so, so young a signora, what you want? And I said, What? The? He says, uh, Spaghetti. Ah, spaghetti is la specialty, la de maison. I said, Oh, you mean uh, that you make it good here, huh? And he says, Ah, yeah, yeah, si, si, senor. With, uh, uh, how you say, uh, how you say Campbell uh, tomato soup? Uh, Met uh, 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 und, uh, uh, excuse, uh, please, uh, you, uh, uh, you Americano, uh, see? I said, yeah, yeah, Americano, Hammond, Indiana, like, you know, American. Ah, you like a spaghetti with, uh, how you say, uh, tomato, uh, tomato sauce, or, uh, uh, the meatballs, meatballs, yeah, oh, meatballs, yeah, yeah, meatballs, very good. I'll have to remember that. Meatballs, all right, meatballs. And he goes, off he goes, I take care of you, younger gentleman, no, no troublesimo. And off he goes. Well, we wait, you know, we could see all the Italians all around us. They're stuffing their faces and yelling and hollering and drinking the, the vino. Uh, and, and the, you know, just having a great time. And Louis is on that. Boy, we're both hungry. We haven't eaten. What we have eaten, uh, immediately after the Navy plane took off in Brooklyn, we ate one box lunch with those special Navy dehydrated plastic chicken sandwiches that they've got. And the, <laughs> yeah, they come with little pills and stuff. You put water on them. So we are ravenous, you know. And and there's something about it, about Naples itself that makes you hungry. And the whole scene, you know, excitement. So we're sitting there, and he comes back about an hour later, it seemed like, and he's got this big platter of steaming, steaming pasta, two great big dishes up, and he says, Oh, here you are, young gentleman. A little mozzarella sprinkle on the top of that. A little tomato sauce. And now hot unto salada. He's mixing up the salada. Italiano, or do you want to French salsa? Ah, Italiano, you're Nepali. We make a good Italiano salsa. Well, he scurried off with our wallets, and we sat down to the rottenest bowl of rubber spaghetti we ever had in our lives. It was the worst spaghetti I ever had in my life. The bottom was cold. The top was made out of pure vulcanized rubber. And in between, he had worms. It was the worst spaghetti I ever had in my life. I looked at Louie. Louie looked at me. And he says, I can do better on 6th Avenue. I says, Louie. Louie, I did better on 6th Avenue yesterday, Louie, for 45 cents. And off in the kitchen, we could hear, We got the one out of Americano. And so, once again... W.O.R. salutes the richness and fullness of life wherever it can be found. It salutes the human spirit searching it out in every corner and every crook and every cranny of this great, wide, wonderful world of ours. Looking for the excitement that is given to all men by the very nature of existence itself. And that is a true story, friends. (laughs) 
Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you the reverse, though. The reverse happened one time. You want to hear the reverse? How, how after after traveling all around, you know, and having been taken at about four thousand places, I arrive in this place in France. You don't want to hear any more about travel tonight, do you? You know. Well, I. <laughs> I arrived I arrived in the most touristy looking joint you ever saw in your life. Now how I got there is a story which I will not even burden you with. Suffice it to say it was a tale of chicanery, woe and sadness that even now at this point I don't want. But I arrived have you ever had something disastrous happen to you right at the beginning of some great adventure? Right at the beginning of some great moment, you know, that you've been looking forward to for a long oh boy, you know. Like the morning of your vacation, you rush out of the house, your car is packed, you're ready to take off to the main woods, you get in the car, you turn the key, the motor starts, you put the car in first, and it goes, strips the gears. It's the way to get it started, you know, that kind of thing. Well, let me tell you what happened to me. I have been, I have been looking forward to this particular trip for a long time, you know, for, for like a year and a half. And uh, I'm prepared for it. And five minutes after I got off the plane, five minutes, the plane landed at Orly Airport. Five minutes after I got off the plane, I am stepping off a curb. Now, you know, it's just a ridiculous thing. I'm stepping off a curb. I'm stepping off a curb that is about two and a half inches high when I feel a muscle in my left leg go I pull the muscle, just stepping off a curb. It's that kind of thing like Harmon Killebrew, you know, throws a ball and he's out for the season. You know, just like a, I pulled the muscle and I heard it go, that muscle went all the way on up the marrow of my bones, Walt. You know, like a rubber band, I could feel it crawling up. It went right up my thigh, right up my, you know, um, and the next thing I know, it's hitting my ear, you know. Oh, oh, oh. And the rest of it is going down through my heel into the ground, you know. Boy, and ten minutes later, my my left my left calf, you know, this thing here that dogs bite. Oh, I got the pad, you know, I got that for the dogs over on the east side there. The thing with the dogs bite, I, it, it was the size, really, of three large gang cantaloupes. And I am, you know, I'm limping from that minute. Have you ever tried, have you ever tried going into a Parisian drugstore and tried to buy an ace bandage? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, that's an exotic experience. They sold me stuff that I didn't even know they allowed them to make yet these days. Unbelievable stuff, you know. You know that you can buy a thumb screw in Paris? You know, the kind that you put on your friends, you know, just, just screw it down there. It's for sold it's for bosses, union leaders and things. And uh and that's what they thought I wanted for what I put in my leg. Ah, so, ah, see, ah, ah, I know what you have suffering. You are suffering from the torture. Ah, I know it's a torture instrument. Ah, yeah, yeah. And he goes back and he comes with a thumb screw and he had a small rack for little people. And so it's Paris. Well, twenty minutes later, I have been euchred into going to this place. Immediately, I I I I break out in a rash. I break out in the hives. When I see these joints, you know, along the east side, I've got an old slogan: "Stay out of places with green marquees and with a doorman in front." That's bad news. Those are bad places. I have never found good food in any of them. 
Well, here's a place that's got a marquee four and a half blocks long. It's got seven doormen all standing in a row, all of them with pens waiting to pick up, you know, with the American Express card and all, the Diners Club card and all that jazz. I said, oh, what am I doing here, you know? And they're all going, ah, ah, monsieur, of the phoniest French you ever heard in your life. These guys were all from the actor's studio. They were out-of-work actors, all kinds of things working there. And I'm working my way down through the line, and I've, you, you tip everybody in sight, you know. The American, the, the American is the only man in the world that tips the sky when he comes down in an airplane. You know, it brought him there. Uh, I've tipped airplanes. I've tipped fire plugs uh, over in Europe. I have tipped horses. I tipped a horse twice one day, and this is the same horse kept following me. His foot hanging out there, you know, with the with the dough. Uh, I've I've tipped uh, I've tipped dogs. I tipped a sheepdog three times in Amsterdam one day. Well, it was a nice sheepdog. It was good to me. Carried my mail, other things. It didn't bite me hard. And, uh, you know, it, I, it's that kind of life. So I get into this French restaurant already, you know. I take one look at the menu, and it's all written in indescribable French. You know, purple ink, faded. Victor Hugo himself, you know, wrote it out, all that kind of stuff. And on the back, there are 18,000 endorsements from Louis XII. You never knew there was a Louis XII, did you? It was the drinking Louis. Louis XII, all of them, they ate there, you know. And uh, there were there were uh, things like Jane Mansfield ate there, you know, that kind of stuff. And, oh, wow. And they brought me the food right away. I said, so bring it, you know, what is it? What is Maison, the specialty to the Maison? And he brings this thing and lays it down in front of me. And it looked kind of green and sort of hairy and moldy, you know. And I'm sitting there, you know, thinking, oh, boy, it's going to cost $75 if it's going to cost a cent. I stuck my fork in it, and instantly, no sooner did I stick my fork in it, my fork went right into this thing, and then, oh, 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 holy smokes. You never believed the food could be like this. You figure that any minute now they're going to come rushing in and bust you. This has got to be illegal. Wow. Holy smokes. I was, I was, believe me, you have never tasted whale tripes that came anywhere near this. Unbelievable. Garnished with Andalusian snails. Oh, wow. Oh. Well, it was good. What a gas. And, you know, I've never been able to go to Rikers since then. Not with a clear conscience, actually. And I always dream of those wonderful days of the past with my, that wonderful rubber pasta. I dream of those great days with that sort of uh, halfway Luke cold. You know, there is such a thing as a Luke cold temperature. Luke cold tomato paste, tomato camberino, camberino, superino, yes, sir. You, we have, we have an actual, actually extra special for American, Americano. He says to me, the Italian waiter says, for Americano, we have special treat, a very special price, too, for the special treat. This is a special thing called a Nesca Cafe Instant Coffee, a special for your Americano. Instant coffee for the Americano. So keep your knees loose, Charlie, out there. And live to the fullest, the rich bouquet of existence. Swing, Dad. Look at the heavens. March forward into the great tomorrow, which you can will yourself by thinking good and, you know, cut a little corner here and there and giving a few guys the nudge in the, you know, with the knee in the, in the back, you know, and a few little things and keep your knives sharpened. It'll work out all right, friend. Yes, sir. That's my baby. Bring it up while they're... Goodbye. Goodbye, gang. <laughs> it's been fun. How y'all, crowd? Yeah, this has been Kate Kaiser here with his College of Musical Knowledge. We'll be back in tomorrow night, same time, with our favorite singer, Jenny Sims, Sully Mason, Harry Babbitt. Sing all them five songs you've been writing in and asking for. So long, gang.